You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what he has to say about the three things that most people haven't got sorted but need to for their financial future. There's three things sort of related, three three common things that um, 95% of new clients um, having have in common. And, and I reckon if people listening to this, if they can tick these three boxes, they're, they're in the top 5%. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Stuart Weems, founder of independent financial advisory business, ProSolution. Stuart is without doubt one of Australia's top financial advisors. Now that's written by Chris, who's a financial advisor yep, himself. Yeah, a bit of a so fanboy. He's a bit of a fanboy. Um, Stuart started his career in two of the big four accounting firms, Deloitte and KPMG, and he's highly qualified in almost everything finance related, once again, according to Chris. But you do have quite a lot of qualifications, I do note. Uh, He's the author of three books, including his recent book, Investopoly, which Chris has read and and rates very highly. And I confess it's still on my reading list, but I have been reading Stuart's blogs and I learn a lot from them. Stuart has been running his own financial advice business, ProSolution, for over 15 years. And in our opinion, one of the leaders in understanding the important part property investing plays in a financial plan. In this episode, we are keen to go deep into the world of financial advice property investment and mortgage broking to uncover why very few financial advisors truly get the importance of understanding property. Great to have you with us, Stuart. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Stuart. And yeah, 100%, you know, do feel that way. I think there's very few advisors in the country that truly understand property and and make a real impact in that part of people's lives. Where should people go to get advice on property? I think that's the first problem. I just wrote an article this week for The Australian, so it'd be out... um, probably be out before this podcast is, <laughs> yeah. um, about the, the fact that the Royal Commission's obviously going on at the moment and there's some horrendous stories coming out of that and that the government has attracted quite a lot of criticism for its sort of lax regulatory approach, in particular ASIC, yep. and we saw it most recently with even just the recent round on insurances. But the thing is, I think the government is completely asleep at the wheel because that we're looking at insurance, we're looking at super, we're looking at... Um, mortgage brokers and financial planners, but no one's considering who's giving property advice. Oh, I know. Yeah. And property advice is completely unregulated. So mm. my view is that the, that something needs to be done, and I think it's inevitable. You know, whether the whether the government forces the industry to self-regulate or whether they bring in some sort of um, regulation themselves, but I think it's inevitable. But the sooner it happens, the better it is. And I think once, once if you need to go out and get a, you know, if, if I could give tax advice, I'm a registered tax agent. So, yeah. you know, my registration is on the line. If I give you guys some tax advice and it's not right, same with financial advice, yeah. same with credit advice, you, but the, but you're not on the line if you if you give someone some property advice. So I can say, look, go and, and invest a million bucks in the property market. Mm. I, I can do that without any 
impunity. You know, yeah, exactly mm. right. But yeah. if I say invest $1,000 into the share market, all of a sudden I've got to mm. jump through all these regulatory hoops, which is fair enough, mm. which is which is rational. So I think that needs to change, Chris, for people to really then to understand who they should get property advice off. But uh, failing that, uh, get get advice from someone that, that um, that's, that's not going to sell you a property necessarily yeah, um, or yeah. or doesn't have any links to developers and, and product mm. really that's there to, to work for you. You pay them a fee and they'll look after you. Um, you really want that sort of arrangement, I would have thought. Yeah. And why do you think a lot of financial advisors in the past haven't looked at investing in property and haven't, you know, built a solution to educate their clients around property investment? Um, you know, it's a bit of a systemic issue across the financial advice industry where it's kind of like, well, no, we don't talk about that. But why do you think that is? I think it's I think it's cultural. I think it's a cultural issue within the advice industry. And I think it really comes about, um, I mean, Buffett's quoted by saying a lot of financial advisors call competencies really salesmanship rather than investment advice. Mm. And I think that's probably true. I think that the culture around giving advice was really about training to sell rather than necessarily give advice. Can you sell the idea to invest in shares? Can you sell this managed fund to a particular client? Mm. Um, and then obviously they're, therefore they've got a vested interest in doing that, particularly over the last, so let's say, three decades, uh, less the last few years where commissions have been banned, but before that last three decades. So there's a whole bunch of financial advisors in their, let's say, 40s, 50s and 60s that have grown up uh, their career has grown through that environment where they've been indoctrinated that property is bad and shares are, shares are good, shares are better. I mean, that's a big point. So not many people would know, but the average advisor age is over 55. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, oh, wow. you've got yeah. 25,000 advisors, but the average of that is over 55. So if you do the mass, very few advisors are in their 40s, their 30s and 20s. Um, and so you're right, like, you know, you go to get a financial advice and then, more likely to see someone who's a bit older and then they're going to be, you know, not really talking about property because they've been doing it for 20 years. So, yeah. And I think the younger advisors coming in the industry today uh, aren't uh, a little bit wiser. They're asking more questions. They're, they're, they're understanding that, hey, there are there's a couple of ways to skin a cat. So I think it will change. I think it will just change naturally. I think mm. it's going to change as a result of more regis, re, registra, regulation and registration and so forth. But, mm. um, but I think also as these younger people come in, that and that younger generation is just not going to stomach what the baby boomers have stomached. I think mm. baby boomers as a generation have been pretty apathetic from a financial perspective. You know, they're mm. just they're, they're just almost leading a horse to water. Whereas the younger generation, I think, ask a lot more questions. Yep. And really want to understand and are a lot more a lot more financially savvy. A hundred percent. I mean, I don't work with older clients, and that's yeah. um, you know I do say that out there. And there's you know a because well, you're a millennial yourself, aren't you? Really? No, well, I mean the first six years I did advice, <laughs> I um, didn't have a hair on my face. That's changed, but um, you know I was twenty in the UK and I was advising people in their eighties. And so the first six years I did literally. Uh, all my advice was to people in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s and very few young clients. Um, and then for the last probably five, six years, it's been with all younger clients. Um, and there's a few reasons why. One is uh, the advice you deliver is completely different. Mm. You know, to mm. someone who's in their 60s, the mindset, the way you deliver it, your language, um, your your relationship, mm. how you talk to them ongoing. Um, but what, also the stage of life. So therefore, you know, they don't have a runway that... that 
that uh, someone in their 20s has. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Mm. And and your biggest risk with investing is time. How mm. long have you got? Mm. If you've got five years, well, okay, we've got problems. If you've got 40 years, okay, well, it's a bit better. So the, the, someone in their 50s, um, you know, it's that. But this, what you said there around the mindset, I have found that that's been a, a big problem. You know, a client's in their 50s, et cetera, um, they kind of want you to work wonders and they've only got a short time frame. <laughs> Um, but a lot of younger clients aren't being that ignorant and they're saying, I know I need to take self-responsibility here. I know that I need to take it and I need to learn and I can't just expect you to come up with the magic bullet. That's um, great. And so that's why I love working with kind of younger clients is because mm. you actually, they ask questions and you get mm. to learn, you get to coach and yeah. educate. Mm. Um, and so that, that that resonates a lot. 70% of my clients are in their 30s or 40s. So yep. I've got a lot of younger clients as well. I find they ask really good questions and you've got to be on your toes. Yeah, I've got a handful of older clients that are in retirement phase naturally. They just want to come and have a chat, mm. yeah. which is I'm, I'm fine with. I'm happy to have a chat, but they won't really ask any sort of questions around investments, performance, return, those sorts of things, which you would think in that stage of life where it's that, that's a critical element, right, because they're not earning, mm. generating um, uh employment income anymore, yeah. you, you certainly want to ask those questions. So anyway, I'm sure there's always exceptions that, that prove the rule, but yeah, I, I enjoy working with younger clients as well because it does, I mean, they do, I find, I don't know what you think, Chris, but they do keep you on your toes. Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, you know, I'll, ask, I'll let Veronica have a question soon. Yeah. Um, Sorry for but- fan club happening over here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing I've, I've been doing for the last five years is mortgage broking, right? And when mm. I moved from a financial advice to mortgage broking, Hands in the air, I underestimated the challenge in, in A, doing both, but B, the complexity to mortgage broking. Um, a lot of people think that mortgage broking is, okay, you just do a bank application, you submit it and you get the result. How hard can it be? But, you know, we both know it is. One of my big frustrations with mortgage brokers, though, is it's a very transactional job yep. at most. What's your experience with, you know, brokers and even though they're helping people make multi-million dollar investment decisions, only really focusing on the loan and making sure the loan happens, but not getting involved at all with the decision itself. I wrote a document. It's on a website called Broker Revolution, and it was like a vision for the industry. And I wrote that uh, about 2012, I think, so six or seven years ago. And it was really around my belief that the financial system was broken, and it kind of still is. So if you think about Financial planners, they tend to have vested interests and no one really trusts them anymore. They certainly haven't they certainly haven't done anything to build Australians' trust either. So they've only got themselves to blame. So yep. I completely understand that. You've got accountants that's so busy just focusing on what happened last year or the previous year before that, and compliance and punching out tax returns to even ask any questions about what the future looks like. Insurance advisors, most insurance advisors just focus on selling insurance or advising on insurance rather than anything else. And so then the the last professional there is mortgage brokers. And I think they've got a, a tremendous opportunity because they're yep. the first people that people typically see. You know, the first idea is, okay, I've got a job now. I'll save a deposit for a house and go buy a house. And then typically go and see a mortgage broker. And so I think it's a tremendous opportunity that mortgage brokers have to build that relationship mm. And then help that person understand the first property you buy is your most important property yep. you'll ever buy because if you buy well, you, you it'll it'll foundation for your future. Yeah, absolutely, exactly yep. right. And yep. and it is a compounding impact. Um, and then as they get sort of deeper into it, you know, sorting out is your super within a retail fund. Well, it should be with an industry fund. You don't need to give advice. You know, you don't you don't need to give financial advice to sort of 
direct people in the right direction. This is interesting, actually, because it's the same in my business, right? I, you know, well, the financial planning, we've already asked you the question about why don't financial planners talk about property? And you could ask the same question to, say, buyer's agents. Why don't buyer's agents talk about other investment vehicles? And I do in my business. Now, I'm not qualified to talk about anything other than property. Mm. However, I can talk about statements of fact, you know, and I can ask questions as well to say, you know, I don't think everyone should invest in property necessarily and I also don't necessarily think property investment is right for every time they want to invest in something. I'm not a fan of cash, a positive cash flow investment at all. Well, I'll just put that right out there. I, I actually don't think there's ever a case for it because of the risks and the costs of getting in and getting out and the amount of borrowing that is involved. All of that equates risk. There's other ways to get cash flow, much less risk, right? But I'm not an expert in those areas. So the minute I think, you know what, somebody wants to invest in property, they don't really have enough money to buy a quality investment. You know, we need to open up the conversation and bring in an expert who's got experience outside of property so that they can fully understand what their options are before they decide that they still want to buy a property or not. I'm yep. brave enough to do that. And also I think professional enough to say that's not my area of expertise and I really do believe in the best overall outcome, you know, for my client. So that's a question that could be flipped on it and talk to property professionals as well. Why don't you talk about other things? And I think as an in, as an advice, as a big umbrella over the advice industry, I think everybody needs to get a good financial planner, a good mortgage broker, a good buyer's agent or property specialist, a good accountant, a good lawyer. Anyone else who want to add it to that list while I'm on my rant? <laughs> uh, no, but as I wrote my article in the, in the Australian recently, I think we've got to stop defining it, what we do by the product that we deliver, you know, that we're all, all three of us here about helping our clients make smart decisions yeah. with their money. And that could be property one day, it could be shares, the next yeah. could be something different. And I think we've got to, I think you can still have an asset class specialist. You know, mm. if I advise my clients yes. to invest in property, I want them to go and engage a, a good reputable buyer's agent because yeah. I'm not an expert in that field. So I think we, we need asset class experts, but if we're giving advice, mm. then I think we stop defining what sort of advice we're giving property insurance this yep. that i think it's got to take a there's there's someone's mm. someone's got to be there to take that umbrella approach and tie it all yeah. together yeah i think it's just taking responsibility if you're if you know something and you don't identify it with someone mm. and you just let them sort it out themselves and mm. hope if you're taking yourself as a profession as a trusted advisor um even if you can't advise on it you need to kind of flag it you need to talk about it you need to say look i think you need to speak to someone about this it's your duty of care. Like if you think, but you know, if you don't know, you can't. So I think this is the thing that, that you know the Financial Planning Association, for argument's sake, you know, really I think they should be including property education so that their planners can be aware of these conversations that need to be had to pr to prompt these sort of conversations. It's likewise, you know, buyers agents association or REBA, you know, we should be talking, Correct, yeah. you know, to financial planners and say, well, let's let's bring in an understanding about other vehicles of, yep. you know, or tax or or the other issues at stake um, so that we can make sure that our client's making good decisions because it comes down to that narrow focus. You might be doing the best thing for your client based Ignorance on your limited Ex or your limited yeah. knowledge, yeah. Yeah, and I think I, so I get quite a lot of, you know, because I'm quite active in the property space and I'm quite vocal on it, then <laughs> some people will come out and say like, a, you know, planners or brokers will call me and um, they've just got a little bit of a sniff that they need to be doing more and then they'll call me and say, Chris, just want to know a bit more about how you do property and, and things like that. And um, I'll ask them questions about what they've been doing and who they're referring to and things like that. 
And what I realized is there's just a huge, mm. huge gap. Mm. Um, and they just don't know where to go. They don't even know what a buyer's agent is or how it works. And mm. um, I'd love to know a bit more about your journey. So, you know, when did, you, how did you start getting more involved with property? And has it always been what you're doing now? Or have you had to, you know, keep working at it and keep meeting people and networking? And yeah. So always had a passion um, in financial services and I always had a passion for independent advice. So I always thought that I always was quite upset very from the beginning of my career that, you know, people would go out and go and see people and get flogged this expensive product that never worked, you know, vis-a-vis managed funds and Mm -hmm. so forth. Um, And so when I was at Deloitte, that was always something I was thinking, well, why don't you have sort of an asset consultant type of person, Mm. someone that doesn't really sell you anything, but can say, put this much in this bucket and this much in this bucket and so, and so forth. So when I left Deloitte, it was really because I wanted the challenge of running my own business. And it was just, I came across the mortgage broking industry at that stage in 2002. And it was in its infancy. In fact, you'd had to explain to a client what a mortgage broker did right. before the conversation went yeah, any further. Yeah. Um, but then through that experience, I realised that people needed advice. People needed saving from themselves, really. I'd have yeah. clients ring up and say, paid too much tax last year, so I just bought this property off the plan so I can negatively oh, gear it. Oh, yeah. yeah, and so that's great. You know, but you could donate all your money to charity and that would so- solve your tax problem, oh. but you've got a wealth problem <laughs> that you need yeah. to need to focus on. Uh and so that, and then that's when I said, that's it, okay, I, I need to start um, uh, casting the net a little bit wider. And um, for a convoluted re- reason, I already had my own AFSL, my own financial planning licence. And so then said, that's it, let's just start doing independent independent advice. Uh-huh. Um, and it was primarily around that that issue that property investors were making really dumb decisions, uh-huh. you know, the wrong asset, the yeah. wrong type, too much gearing, um, not enough consideration in terms of ownership structures, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and then naturally it it expanded from there and, and you know, if we're going to take a holistic approach, let's be agnostic, asset class agnostic, agnostic and say, uh-huh. you know, whatever suits the client mm-hmm. at, at the right period of time, we can mm-hmm. we can give advice on. And so have mm-hmm. you always looked at, because I know you work with a lot of buyer's agents, yeah. have you always worked with buyer's agents? Have you, you know, obviously that career's profession's progressed? I mean- yeah, how's that? Has it always been like that? Yeah, since since the beginning. And it's funny how life works out. Only by chance. I was writing articles for a magazine called Australian Property Investor, which is oh, yeah. which is no Maybe more. Like, what well, is? Is it? Yeah. Um Ripe House. So Ripe uh, what's his name? Um Jacob Field. Oh, right. Ripe okay. House went into partnership with um another guy whose name just escaped me. Anyway, they've they've revived it, so it's it's live and well. Oh, in print? No, online. No, online, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, anyway, I started writing uh, for them and then another buyer's agent in Melbourne was also writing and then and then we happened to I'd have a conversation about something and it really just progressed from there that I wanted my clients to get some good quality advice mm. and um, a lot of my clients would be professionals and time poor. They don't have, well, certainly they don't have the experience or understanding but also they don't have the time mm. and um, just thought that was a really good natural Fit to make mm. sure that the clients are going to be looked after and uh-huh. and they get some good quality advice and spending a lot of money. Why would you not get advice uh-huh. if you're going to invest in property? Well, that's sort of the bottom line, isn't it? But yet, yet it's still more prevalent that people do it without advice because everyone seems to think, oh, I live in a house or I live in an apartment, oh. therefore I understand them. Yet they just have no concept of the risk, the massive risk that they're undertaking. 
It's sort of interesting because in Victoria, or in Melbourne particularly, it seems to me, and I might be rightly or wrongly here, that, that buyer's advocacy, as it's called down here, is more entrenched than it is in Sydney where we're called buyer's agents. There's still, we seem to be lagging behind in Sydney. Why do you think Victoria has been, you know, more on the forefront of this? Or, well, or am, I, am I imagining it? Victorians are more intelligent people, I think. Oh, God. <laughs> I think, I think, so I open it up for that one tonight. <laughs> I think there's lots of studies that have proven that, surely. Yeah, I, right. I, just, I just need to find them. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, not really, I'm not really sure, but, it, but it's beyond me how, you know, there's knowledge and there's inexperience, right? And knowledge without experience is, is, is useless because mm. you don't know how to apply it. So it's great when people say, oh, look, I've read a few books, I know what I'm doing, and I just sort of chuckle to myself mm. inside my head. Mm. I, I, I well, here's so... a good one. I negotiate for a living. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. You know, I don't do my own dentistry, so, mm. you know, I don't think people mm. should do their own buyer's agent work. So, um, and the way I look at it, look, okay, sure, um, you know, some buyer's agents say, oh, look, I'm great at negotiation or I can get off market properties or I can save you time. All those things tick, tick, tick. For me, it's really about insurance. You, mm. you pay an insurance premium to mitigate your risk that, that, that you're going to buy a dud asset. It doesn't totally eliminate risk. Obviously, there's risk in everything. But, mm. you know, if I'm going to pay someone that's been doing that sort of work for 10, 15 years, every single day, six days a week, I mean, it's it's stupid to think that I could replicate the the same it, quality. It's true, but the thing is, and that's interesting what you say about mitigating risk, and that's certainly you know we talk about risk a lot with our clients, and we have a have quite a structured process of evaluating individual properties as well, to give a sense of predictability about its ability to perform above you know the rest of the market, and then you got what is the rest of the market, you know, so it's that that suburb, the area, the city, the country. So there's a lot. There's not enough analysis, I don't think, um, and I think a lot of local experts don't understand the bigger picture to be able to then put their local advice into context. And I think it's really important that. So not all buyers agents are equal, unfortunately, and likewise, a lot of all buyers agents should be giving investment advice mm, if they're mm. not qualified investment advisors, qualified property investment advisors. Then, then you know, you know, really question as to whether they should be giving investment advice. Mm. They can buy a property for you. They can evaluate that property, you know, but whether they can advise you on the investment side of things. And it's part of this regulation or yep. lack of, or lack thereof. Yep. yep. And do you get, I mean, I do, um, do you get lots of calls from kind of developers and uh, people trying to use <laughs> you to sell property? Um, I don't anymore, <laughs> probably because um, I'm pretty clear in everything mm. I've written about that sort of space. Um, but certainly I know, you know, other uh, other friends and colleagues in the broking industry, mortgage broking industry and other other planners, they're, they're, they're bombarded. And the commissions are ridiculous. Like, yeah. the, the, you know, you, you earn 20 or 30 grand just by recommending one property to a particular client. Yeah. You know, you it's, un un it's unbelievable, really. And so for the listeners, the question to ask, if your mortgage broker or your financial planner is recommending a specific property to you, you have to ask, are you getting paid to recommend this? You know, yeah. because that's immediately you're paying overs. You know, that's just the start. I mean, in my, my, my view is if, if you're seeing a broker or you're seeing a financial advisor and they're referring you to a company that's trying to sell you a, a new property, um, you've got to get yourself a new broker Run. or a new planner. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's in that, I, can, I can be that blunt with it because, you know, you and I have both seen the results and we know how poor the advice is um, and how conflicted it is. And so, you know, if you have got a planner or a broker that's doing that, you know, you've, you know, you've got to look somewhere else. Yeah. 
with property, what are some of the conversations that you have as a financial advisor that you think make a true difference to how they think about property and how they act? Um, one recent one that jumps to mind is price point. Yep. So so understanding what sort of price point. I was talking to a client um, this week and they were sort of saying they wanted to upgrade their home. And they also, um, they've got a couple of investment properties that um, are questionable assets. Not They haven't held them long enough um, for us to determine whether they're underperforming assets, but they're questionable. So they wanted to upgrade their home, which is going to mean that they're going to take on a little bit more debt, another 200 grand uh, of more debt. And I was thinking, well, they said to me, well, maybe we should sell one of the questionable investment properties and reinvest in a, another property in Brisbane, for example, they just, they mentioned Brisbane and spend 400 grand on, on that. And I actually said to them, well, actually um, it sounds counterintuitive, but that, that's a much higher risk proposition because you're going to get an apartment in Brisbane and that market's really struggling, obviously. But if you're going to divest of an underperforming asset and replace it, and they, these guys are in their fifties, so they don't have, you yeah. know, a lot way. of decades, mm. yeah, to, to, for it to work, you actually then want to reduce your risk. And the best way to reduce your risk is getting higher quality assets. Yeah. Yeah. So if they're going to do that, then they're probably better off um, moving into that eight to $900,000 bracket if yeah. they're in Brisbane and getting themselves a house with some, some dirt under it. So it's really well, about... Do you then just open up the question and say, well, does it have to be in Brisbane? It doesn't have to be in Brisbane. That's mm. right. But just leading off their, their yeah, conversation, yeah. you know, yeah. maybe it's in a different state. They're actually based in Perth, so it's not going to be in Perth in my, in my <laughs> mind. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and given yeah. their price point, it's probably either going to be Melbourne or Brisbane. But it's about understanding mm. the strategy and, and understanding what, what the price point is. And it's not just a case of you've always got to invest more. Mm. I don't think that's true either because no, yeah, there's exactly. some situations where you want to want to pull it back. They're going, too hard, yeah. Um, but but really understanding the strategy and really reducing the risk within the strategy um, is a conversation I have. Regular. Yeah, because people think the risk is in the borrowing, but the mm. real the risk is in the asset. Oh yeah, you yeah. know. And so it, you know, borrowing more money feels riskier, and, and sometimes it is. I'm not saying it isn't at all times, but but if you are using that to buy a quality mm. asset that is more likely to go up in value, then of course it's a it's less risky than being cheap and buying something cheap because it's affordable yeah. and actually in an area like Brisbane's. Brisbane's hasn't done, well, Brisbane apartments, apparently not one of them has actually shown a median uh, price increase over the last 10 years in yeah. apartments and it's not predicted to be any different in the next 10 no. years. Yeah. So, oh. Yeah, I mean, I like that because I, I agree the price point clients will think that, you know, I'll get something cheap and cheerful and it's not just when it, if it goes up or not, it's actually if it, the market turns and goes bad, mm, the, the yeah. lower price point gets hit harder. Yes. And, you know, so what you're actually doing, that's the risk, right? The risk is if things fall, yep. you know? Mm. And so by spending maybe say 750, 800 in Brisbane in the housing market, you know, four or five Ks from the city, there's scarcity there. Um, you know, there's first home buyers, there's upgraders, there's strong demand or spending 400,000, 35 Ks from the city and new duplex you can see what would fall more in a down market. Mm. And so, um, you know, that's a really good point. Is there any other points around the upgrade strategy there you mentioned there as well? You know, do you do, you do a lot of work around educating people on whether they should do it, whether they should stay or renovate? Yeah, it's an, it's an important consideration. And, and the, the you know, whether you buy something that's already renovated or buy something that you'll renovate in a few years' time is is often a, a, a common sort of conversation. Um, I think the... The, the, the thing around upgrade and downgrade is that I, I almost never want to um, rely upon pulling equity out from a, from a downgrade. So that is when people have, a, say, a family home, large family home, 
the kids leave the home and they think, well, our retirement strategies, we've got all this equity in our home mm. and one day we're going to downgrade and and so therefore I don't need to worry about investing because I'm going to rely upon that. Um, so there's probably I can count them on my hand, the number of clients where we've built that into the model or, or the strategy because that's because it's made sense. Well, but they often, already own the asset when they came to you? Well, they already own the asset or, or, the, or there's, that's the only way to really fund yeah, their, their yeah, goals. Yeah. We are really relying upon it. And we've explored what does that downgrade look like yeah. because this is the problem is that people might want to downgrade and it might be downgrade in terms of accommodation size. Or just downsizing versus downgrading. Downsi yeah, exactly yeah, right. Yeah. So, mm. But you're not downgrading in terms mm. of price point. And if you are, it's not material, mm. you know. Yeah. So, you, so you certainly want to. So I think if. It's absorbed if, in the transaction costs. Yeah. 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 Often. Yeah. You know, they might, they might be in a great suburb with a big family home, but they might, their friends and family and connections and communities in that suburb, they don't want to move out of that suburb. So they might then go and buy a brand new um, townhouse or something on one level or something like that, but it's probably going to cost them what the house yeah. has cost them, or at least not mm. that much difference. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's happening in Sydney. A lot of the, the beautiful apartments that really suit downsizers, Harbour View, you know, great premium suburbs, you know, they are, you know, staying extremely, you know, competitive because you've got people selling out of homes for three, four million and they're competing in these beautiful apartments. But you look at the, the numbers. It's the and same there's in not the suburbs though. You know, so the, the family home that might have been there thirty or forty years, and then there's you know apartments quite often being built in, in the in the little mini CBD of each suburb. You know, close to the train station quite often, um, and those apartments often being you know newer and you know, all the mod cons and all the rest of it. And these houses often they have never renovated, or they might have renovated twenty years ago, and they're all dated. And so there's this the disparity in price is not 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 huge. It's mm. So it's actually quite a phenomenon that's that's across the board. Mm. Mm. And how do you help first home buyers? So, you know, someone comes to you, you know, Stuart, we, we want to buy our first house and we've got I don't know, 150 grand and, you know, how what sort of process do you go through to help them figure out, you know, that A, should they be doing it? B, should they invest first before, I, you know, what sort of, talk me through kind of the, the, the talk you have with a the client there because, I think it's a lot of very valuable. So, um, you know, there's that saying, you try and chase two rabbits, you catch neither of them. Well, <laughs> what, what I try and do is chase two rabbits. <laughs> right. So I, I try and educate people to realise that the first property they buy is by far the most important decision, probably yeah. the most important investment decision they'll ever make in their life, and that if they buy well, that um, that'll help them generate equity and that'll just have a, a massive compounding impact, uh, not only just from their financial perspective, but also creating a lot of options moving forward where they're upgrading, even just from a lifestyle perspective, upgrading for a family home and yep. those sorts of things. So what I try and get um, first home buyers do is buying a pure investment property. And then once they've bought the property, they can then decide whether they want to occupy it or put a tenant in it and then go and rent somewhere else or still live with mum and dad or whatever they might want to do. Um, so that's what I try and do now. So it's around buying it where they want would like to live. No, no, no. I try and say leave every all your personal desires out of it right, and yeah. just go and buy yourself the best uh, investment property that your budget allows. Mm. And I try and push that budget as much as I can. Obviously, that's safe to do so within safe limits. So I don't try and because again, I want to get a better quality property. So if yep. we can push it to six hundred. Great, let's do that. If six hundred is not affordable, then of course I'm not going to recommend yep. Yep. recommend they do that. And so, do you uh, around the CGT kind of exemption Capital around gains tax for your, <laughs> um, you know, can you explain how you incorporate that into it? So I would say to them, look, try and live it in it for the first 
say six months, you know, make sure you change your electoral roll, get the utilities connected in your name, et cetera, et cetera, and actually use the utility. So you've got some some evidence to mm. show that, hey, this was genuinely my principal place of residence. I think that's a really good point for our listeners. You know, a lot of property investors understand the six-year rule, like yep. that where you can, if you buy a property, you live in it when you first purchase it, you don't own any other property, then it becomes your principal place of residence. And if you then decide to leave that property um, for any reason and you rent it out, it can still grow for you tax-free for up to six years. Yep. A lot of people try to play this and they don't actually live in it. Um, yep. And so they'll buy it, they'll change their electoral role and their, their RTA and, you know, et cetera. Um, but then they just go, just keep living at home and leave it off the market for three months. But I think your point there, Anne, you actually have to live in it. Mm. You actually have to get some photos of furniture in there. You actually have to go to work, um, get some ele- electricity bills. Yeah. Because if you do get audited one day, that's the evidence you're going to need. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. And, and you're potentially saving you know, whatever that growth is over that six years, mm. you know, you're saving 25% of that growth in tax. Yeah. So, so it's a sign- it potentially significant saving. Yeah, for six get- months of living there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's really not um, a big deal, I think, to go through that process. Mm. Why do you worry mm. about that from a strategy point? I'm just trying to think from a, an advice. How does it, if they um, do then want to own a home, let's say they're getting have kids and, you know, they want to put roots down, they've got an investment property, how do you deal with the challenge then that they will have to then sell that investment? to fund that home and then the if that's only two or three years time maybe the transaction costs would eat away a lot of that growth um yeah if i thought that was the case then i I wouldn't if i thought that that's what they needed to do in that shorter period of time then i wouldn't recommend buying property now i I would i would wait i'd only um say let's go and buy a property if if i was confident we're going to keep it for eight to ten years but closer to ten yeah i think i want that full that full cycle. Yeah. Um, if they've, you know, if, if it's a couple that are all together and thinking about having kids and so forth and they go and buy that investment property and it's a principal place of residence, et cetera, um, and we can get that exemption, then potentially they can move back into the property in six years' time. Mm-hmm. It's then your principal place of residence. And then in Victoria you can re-gear it. You can then change the ownership and pull the equity out mm. of it. You can't do that in any other any other state in That's Australia. A but little tip, isn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I mean they're down here. They've got the, the love and affection. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, is that a name ex- for it? Yeah, it's called love and affection, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Can you explain how that kind of works for our listeners? <laughs> so if you've got um, one spouse, you, you'd put the the property in one spouse's name. Typically, you'd put it in the lowest income earner's name so yeah. that the highest income earner either owns little or maybe 1%. Sometimes yeah. we, we often go 991 just from an asset protection perspective in case yeah. of a marital relationship breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's say um, the, uh, the husband owns 99% and the wife owns uh, 1%. Uh, in six years' time, they reoccupy the property because you can only do love and affection now if it's if your principal place of residence. They reoccupy the property and the husband sells his 99% to the wife. If the wife's the highest income earner, which is hopefully what it is because you'll put it, um, that's how you want to structure it, um, then the wife can go and borrow whatever that property is worth at that particular time and then pay the husband back and the husband gets rid of the loan against it. So you're really pulling <laughs> wow. out the equity in that property. Wow, okay. Um, and then it doesn't change the amount 
that you have to borrow. It really just changes the split between deductible and non-deductible. Yeah, yeah, which is obviously one of the big problems with buying exactly right uh, your first property and then having that living in it and then having it as an investment. Quite often, you, well, a you've put in maybe twenty percent for deposit for starters, yeah. then you've got the equity growing in it. Plus, you've been paying down the loan. Yeah, and you know when you have an investment property, you want maximum amount of deductible debt. So yeah, it's and interesting. you can only do that once, can you, or you can you do it twice? No, or with the same asset. Mm. Oh, that's a that's a good question. But once it becomes an investment property that first sale, then if you sell if you mm. do it again, you'll trigger CGT, CGT couple of gains tax. Gotcha. So it's probably not worthwhile. Mm. Uh, and then it's an investment property, so it would be dutable as well. They did change it. it used to be you could do it for own occupy and investment, but now it's only own occupy. Right. Yeah. So they could close that loophole a little good bit. Good reason to get a financial planner, obviously, yeah, yeah. so well, that you've got access to this sort of info. <laughs> yeah, good reason to do some planning to really mm. work out what that next 10 years looks like, which can be really challenging. I know Chris would probably agree with this for young people yeah, mm. because it's hard to predict what, you know, even if you get deeper into life, what the next 10 years hold, let yeah. alone when you're in your 20s or 30s. Yeah, yeah, I think there's, but you've got to start to think like that at some point in your life, you know, I, I find it quite frustrating when, um, you know, and I always challenge clients on it. I know that they, you know, like, like it, um, <laughs> you know, when they'll say, you know, yeah, because I always want to, you know, what's happening with work, what's happening with your family, you know, what do you, you know, where do you want to live long term, you know, and they start talking and then they love to throw, oh, yeah, we'll live here for five years. And I go, and it's like they mentally don't want to think more than five years time because they like to be spontaneous and, you know, the world's our oyster Keep and we can live anywhere. <laughs> but if they naturally, if you did start thinking things through longer term, you know, most people's lives are quite predictable. Yes. And you, they would have actually started to make plans for that in 10, you know, and so you really don't kind of fall trapped to that of, well, maybe just for the next five years we're going to live here. If you actually just think, well, maybe we could live here for 15, 20 years, even though it sounds scary, you can actually then plan for it, you know, and you can actually say, well, yeah, well, when the kids get older and they grow, then this is going to be way too small, this house. Yeah. And so you better start coming up with solutions for that now rather than, you know, in seven years' time when the kids are, you know, are too big. Um, it's funny. There's three things sort of related, three three common things that um, 95% of new clients um, having having common. And, and I reckon if people listening to this, if they can tick these three boxes, they're, they're in the top 5%. So um, most people don't have a will. Uh, most people have no idea what they spend on general living expenses and most people don't know when, what age they want to retire and how much income they need. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I find that and they're pretty, they're three pretty fundamental mm. issues, right? I mean, a will's important. Mm. Um, if you don't know where your money's going, you can't, you can't manage what you don't measure. So, you know, you don't have to um, track every dollar and cent, although that's easy mm. to do these days with apps and so forth. But, you know, just even at a high level, I'm confident I spend $90,000 a year. Yep. You know, not not many clients. In virtually, in fact, I'm almost full off my chair if someone yeah. actually tells me yeah. a, at the beginning. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, when when do you want to retire and and how much money do you need? How much money do you need? I'd just go whatever you're spending today is probably a good rule of thumb. Yeah. Um, depending on how old you are. Uh, and Take out your mortgage repayments. Hopefully, you've yeah, paid your house. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just on general living expenses <laughs> yeah. and. And um and then I, pick an age. I mean, aim mm. for something. You aim at nothing. That's exactly what you'll achieve. So. So I think if people in their own mind can think about their own situation, if they can tick off those three, yeah. they're, they're miles ahead. And mm. they're, not, they're not really big. I mean, they're big decisions, certainly, but they're not, they're not um, uh, big issues to really 
to, to solidify. With. Yeah, to no. grapple with, yeah. But it's funny. I mean, you have the, the dinner table conversation or the barbecue conversation is you know, often about property and often about investments and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's not often it's often about quantity, you mm. know, rather, rather than quality and also mm. certainly not about why. Mm. Why are you doing it? Oh, because, oh, you know, don't you, doesn't, doesn't everyone want to have 10 properties? Um, or whatever, you know what I mean? And so, and that's the why bit, isn't it? Why yep. are we doing this? We're actually doing this because I want to be free. Yep. So you, you, I think you're going to allude to the answer, but what's your view on quantity versus quality? Um, well, I think quality in every investment asset trumps uh, quantity every day of the week. Mm-hmm. So I think you can apply that concept to investing across the board. And, you know, if you invest in average quality assets, you just can't expect above average quality returns. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be commensurate with quality. So if you're going to obsess about anything with money and investing, it's obsess about obsess quality. about quality. So I, I don't think, I mean, as a rule of thumb, uh, I would rarely recommend a client invest in, say, three properties. And certainly I can't remember the last time in the last 10 years, I've suggested a client buy four. Mm. Typically, it's one or two, um, which is kind of interesting because there's a lot of people out there saying, well, want a big property portfolio or a common one I'm sure, Chris, you get, I want to buy five properties over the next five years or something like that. But that's just, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, you've got to think about how does property interact with the rest of your assets and what does that retirement strategy look like? So you put in too many properties, you've got too much debt and you take too much debt into retirement when you're going to be really sensitive to interest rate changes yep. and movements. So in one way, uh, there, there is, there's a case of over-investing. I have had a client do that and it hasn't turned out very well and we said stop mm. and then we said stop and then like literally a week later she rang up and said, I bought another two on the weekend. Oh, God, oh my God. And it totally unwound her financial position. She had to sell down wow. a lot of assets, yeah. and it really was a wasn't it wasn't dire. She's okay. But, but have you seen lots of clients with prudent. properties with say you know six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve continuing over the years? No, you haven't seen no. many. You haven't met many. No, no. I well, wouldn't. yeah. I mean, I'm I'm surprised you say that because I mean, I I have actually. I mean, I, mm. I and it's um. You know, and it, the the conversation kicks off pretty quick, and it's like they'll be like, "Hey, I'm this, I'm," and I've got but, a few at the are moment. Are they coming to you though because they they want to get more money to buy another one? No, they're usually coming to me because they want someone to talk it through. Yeah. They've they've read something and then they're a bit worried and they're right. not sure what to do. Yeah. So one client at the moment, I think she's selling seven properties for eight. Um, and you know, so seven she's got to get rid of. Um, and uh, how she determine which seven? Well, it's pretty obvious. They're all crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, and there's another oh, client. Oh, people do. They just go. Another client with 14. Wow. Oh, um, and, and typically what sort of stuff? I mean, how have they bought this Cairns, stuff? Cairns, South East oh, Queensland, yeah. um, rural, Gold Coast, Adelaide. All the typical sort of sp- Hopefully they've they got a mining town in there somewhere, surely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's the thing, right? And they um, – because it's always been about a quality and there's yep. a lot of people who quantity, push, you mean. quantity, I mean, and a lot of people push, um, you know, if you've got the borrowing capacity to buy another property, you should. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've got 200 grand more borrowing capacity. I've got equity to buy something at 200,000. I better do it now because I shouldn't, you know, I'm going to miss the opportunity. And so what they do is they rush out and buy something at 200 grand. What can I buy for 200 grand? And 
then you look at the options for that and your options are pretty poor. And I think um, mm. it takes a lot of patience and confidence oh, to yeah. say, you know what, I am just going to work on my income a bit more and then I'm also going to build some more equity and I'm going to wait. And then I'm going to wait to my borrowing capacity, say 500 to get one really good one. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of property investors make is they just try to, you know, instead of just going for two, um, and I agree, I very rarely do I recommend clients buy three properties. Mm. Um, it's usually two. Mm. And let's see how that goes mm. and get through that for a few years. You're going to eat a lot of debt. You're going to feel a lot of stress. You've got a lot of cash flow. And yeah. um, it's, it's that's not. That's exactly right. I mean, I that conversation with my clients about the cash flow it's like okay with this you got to roughly you got to understand you're going to buy a quality asset and if you are going to dig into the equity in your own home which means you're going to borrow 105 percent of whatever we're going to buy then the rent is not going to pay for itself right you have to understand that it's an investment on a monthly basis and forget the tax return that'll be the bonus at the end of every year on a monthly basis you're going to have to find the cash to fund this investment and and think about it in, in terms of an ROI mm. you know that, that that's that's your monthly investment yeah. as opposed to the you know a million dollars or whatever it is that the actual asset is costing and just sort of rethink it through and so therefore growth is very very important you know much more important than rent mm. um, rent's just helping you you know, the the growth is what we're targeting here. And but that conversation, you know, it's smart people. You just gotta go make these, you know, look look, it's gonna maybe dig into your pocket at two grand a month. Mm. Have you got that? Mm. And are you prepared to commit it to it? Yeah, I mean that's the big point. I mean, I've lost clients for sure who haven't who come come on board because, you know, they get to the cash flow conversation. And I'm very conservative with it and, I'm, you know, it's 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 going to be a big number and it's going to be painful. Mm. Yep. And I'd rather the client deal with that now yeah, yes. than experience it and go into it blind thinking, oh, I'm going to get this amazing rent and it's not going to cost me all, you know, I, I won't include depreciation if there is. Like that's, A, you probably should, very, A, it's an established property so you're not going to get it. But mm. when you look at the numbers, that number's got to sit and you've got to be really comfortable with it. Um and, you know, some clients will say, you know, I don't want it to cost me anything. I want I want mm. it to be, you know, out of my pocket. And um, there is an opportunity cost for that is you get a much different type of asset and you don't get the growth, which is the whole reason why you're investing. And so. Although um, that, sh- that is the whole reason why you could invest, but it's not the whole reason why people invest. And mm. that's the problem. They're actually really starry-eyed and they've been sucked in by a lot of spookers and a lot of those false promises about, you know, oh, well, you know, it's a sign of success to say how many properties I've got, you oh. know. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, so it, they're not focused on growth. And, you know, every time I put out some sort of blog or, or comment, you know, in social media about how, why capital growth is so important and why it should really be the only thing you focus on when it comes to property, and I'll always get someone taking me on, having a go at me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I mean, like. Do you agree with that, that capital growth is everything? I don't know how you cannot agree. It's just simple maths. Yeah. You, you try and put just put it into a spreadsheet and tell me how a a, a positive cash flow strategy works or mm. a, or a high yield property sort of strategy works. It just doesn't. It doesn't work. It's just the compounding nature of interest. So, yeah. that, I mean, that's what I like. I like evidence based strategies. Yeah. You know, where <laughs> yeah. there's there's overwhelming evidence that this strategy is going to work. And I would say before anyone invests one dollar. Look for the evidence, not just the idea or the marketing spiel, mm. but every financial, um, in my view, every bit of advice I give isn't my opinion. I can prove yes. why. Mm. Just simple maths, logic. I can show you the results. If we had have invested this way in the last 30 years, what the results would have been. Yep. 
there's no promises. There's always risk. Mm. But I can dem- it's, it's not my opinion you're asking for. You, yep. you well, it, I mean, it is in a way, but but I can verify my opinion. It's your educated opinion. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You've, you've invested just in your own time, your own mind into it, and you've you've done that for so many years where you've had to keep questioning yourself. You've been mm. reading stuff that doesn't agree with your mm. opinion yeah. and you've kept educating, you've kept conf- like and that that's that's been how I've learned is so I've mm. kind of looked used RP data and looked at typed addresses in and seen what it sold for and yeah. and played around with it and thought, hang on a sec, you know, that place hasn't gone up. And then you've looked at a house in the suburb and see what the house did. Yeah. And, and you you kind of you start to build this evidence in your mind so you can yeah. be confident when you deliver advice. Yeah. yeah. Um you wrote a really good article in the Australian I I think I sent a text to you about it actually yeah. around negative gearing. Yeah. And um, it wasn't something that I was particularly worried about for my clients and whether it would go and, you know, because I, I realised that you know, the impact that may have on the property market uh, will. Um, mm. Love to know your thoughts on it and, and what, you, you know, how do you feel that's going to impact the market if it does come in and whether you think it will? Well, I think it will come in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I think it will impact the market. I think uh, I think rents will go up as a result. I think uh, volume of investor money coming into the market will reduce, and you know I think it will reduce hamper further. Reduce further, mm. yeah. And um, and I think the you know the volume of of demand for property will will reduce as well. Which depending on what owner occupiers are doing at that particular time might put downward pressure on prices. But I think all those things are very short term. Mm. I don't think it will make. Let me look at the property returns in major capital cities really since 1980. And you've had, you think about it, you've had, you've had CGT introduced in 85, yeah. you've had negative gearing banned in 85 as, as well for a period of time until they wound it back. Um, you've had market crashes, you've had GST, GST introduced, like you've had lots GFC. of different, lots of different governments <laughs> mm. and all that sort yeah. of stuff. The market will endure and quality will prevail, you know, quality yeah. properties yeah. will, will prevail. So it will be okay in the long run, but certainly there might be some bumps in the road. I think and if, look, I think too, if you hold a quality asset and you just ride that out because it will just all go back to normal and pick up, you hold a dog of an asset, you know, maybe it's time to bail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you, if you, if you, I mean, there's never a, my view is there's never a bad time to buy a good quality asset and yeah. there's never a bad time to sell yeah. a bad quality yeah, asset. Yeah, totally agree. So if you've got a bad quality asset, you probably want to get rid of it before the election comes around. Well, I guess year. that's <laughs> my, my big worry is that, you know, um, I see a lot of these clients come to me and, you know, quickly, you know, one of the first questions is, you know, asking about where they want to go. And then we talk about, have you got any properties? Yes. Um, what's the backstory? What have you owned? And, you know, I just see the, the small number of clients that I help each week and I see the problems. I know how big this problem is on scale. Um, and you think all those apartments you can see in areas of high supply, they're owned by someone. There's their lives. There's people's futures. Mm. And um, if something like this did get introduced, they're the ones who are kind of head in the sand. They don't even know it's happening. Yeah. And then bang, um, their financial, their futures would be, you know, dramatically. And, I think it's just easy for people to go, oh, okay, it doesn't matter, you know, et cetera. But they're, they're their neighbours. They there. could be their brothers, their sisters, their parents who yep. just are a bit not sure that they're doing the wrong thing. But it's a vote winner. Yeah, although it doesn't apply retrospectively. So if you've got an existing asset, it's not you're still going to get your gear in, you're still going to get your 50% um, yeah, capital so- gains tax discount. It's only from a yet-to-be-determined date, from acquisitions beyond that date. But the numbers don't stack up for the investor to buy it anymore because, you know, an so investor. So in terms of your resale opportunity you're talking yeah, about. So yeah, so when someone like, you know, 
if you so oh, say right, it's worth a yeah. million dollars now for yeah. a two bedroom unit in Waterloo, yeah, um, and ninety percent of them are bought by investors. Um, the investors are buying that today, knowing that if they do have a loss, they can deduct it. Yeah. Um, but if it was post rules, they would say, "Well, I can't yep. deduct this loss anymore. It's no longer for me worth a million dollars. I could, for me to make this work on paper, I would only pay about seven hundred thousand dollars for it to it to be positively mm. geared. Um, and uh, I'm not gonna. I can't afford to run a loss. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where the big risk is the capital fall for these people because. Uh, yeah, definitely. Any investment grade property, I think, will weather the storm will be fine. Mm. Any non-investment grade property won't, but any non-investment grade property is not going to work anyway. Yeah, and That's exactly um, right. and then the negative mm. gearing changes will just exacerbate it, or or make you make investors realise that sooner yeah. rather than later. So in a way, maybe it's not so bad because wise investors will work out, hey, this asset doesn't have the fundamentals, yep. and I'm really relying on the tax legislation to make it worthwhile, so although, I should just move on. Although what happens and what has certainly happened with the Liberal government in last year's budget change to negative gearing is that investors are encouraged into buying new stock, yeah. you know, because they get the de- the depreciation, but they're not really thinking about what's next. There's no secondary market for that because the next lot of investors buying it don't get the depreciation. So... Who's there to buy it, you know? And so there's the discount, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that's the, anyway. And that. negative gearing will apply, will only apply to, to new build property as well. So you can imagine, my that's my greatest fear, yeah, the yep. market. Is, is that the property spruikers and developers will be all over <laughs> oh, it. <no. laughs> and um, just make it worse. And, you know, they'll make a lot of money from it. Yeah. Uh, but the poor investors that, that get dragged along with that marketing spiel will, will pay dearly. And, yep. you know, so you put that together with what we just – Previously spoke about there's no regulation mm. around that yeah. property oh, advice bit, and then you you bring disaster. in tax legislation to incentivise that market. Mm-hmm. It's it's um it's a it's a pitfall of money. So hopefully yeah. not one of our listeners will fall for that. No no no. Please do yeah, not fall for that. That's right, and I mean that's the big worry about all these first home buyer stamp duty exemptions, yeah. right? Yeah. You know the government. Um, Oh, we're going to help first home buyers. We care about you. We love you, etc. Why don't you don't have to pay stamp duty as long as you buy new? And it's like, okay, I don't pay stamp duty, but then I buy a poor asset, and I, mm. you know, and I think the the government's not really about people's best interests. They're just going, what's actually going to uh, win some votes? But they, yeah, there's that. But there's also they actually I think they do firmly believe. You know, all the politicians come out there and say the the, the answer to affordability is supply. And they, loads of them say it on both sides of the fence, mm. you know, and it's like, ah, uh, no, it's not. You know, there's a, it's a lot more complex issue than purely supply and it's really, really naive to even come out with it and it's just symptomatic of, I guess, short-termism and also this idea of trying to dumb down and simplify things that are yeah. not simple. What sort of property do you own? Investment-grade property. Of course, oh, of but course. What, yeah. Do, and what, do what is an investment grade? Because I think that's um, I use I, I don't use that exact word, but you know what what do you think is an investment grade property? So I think um, and as I, I I've got a whole chapter in Investopoly about it, but for me there's three things, and all three things must be um, present and observable in in a particular property for it to be defined as investment grade, in my opinion. And investment grade property, really from a capital growth perspective, should should probably have a, a a compounding capital growth rate of 5% plus inflation. So that's kind of the broad definition, the if you like. 7% per annum. Yeah, about yep. 7%. Yep. So you want more than 50%. The first one is more than 50% of it 
um, has to be land value, has a land value component. So even even from an apartment perspective, the the misnomer out there is well, apartments don't have any land value, but obviously older style apartments mm. in particular do. You know, it might be a an Art Deco block of say eight apartments that that typically sit right in the middle of the block with a lot of land around it, and they they probably build fifty apartments on that same size mm. land today. <laughs> yep. Um, but notionally, that land might be worth you know three million bucks or four yep. million dollars. So one eighth of that that yep. land value is just just notionally, obviously, it'd be a different way to apportion it. So uh, apartments, but typically older style apartments, will have a, a strong land value component. And and that comes into location too, is where they're, where they're actually located. You don't get those older style apartments a long way out from the city. No, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, they're not build, they're not building double brick no. <laughs> uh, Art Deco apartments anymore. And that's a really important point to focus on that because yeah, they are built in inner ring suburbs. They are built in lifestyle suburbs because it's where people wanted to live. 60 years ago or 50 years ago when the population was much, much smaller um, and they're not, and usually they're heritage protected or the streetscapes are protected. Yep. So you don't get more supply. Yep. Yep. The second thing is you want scarcity. So scarcity in terms of land locations, it wants to be, you want to notionally have, you know, a lot more potential purchases for that property than there are sellers. And you're not obviously not going to get that imbalance of supply in obviously outer areas. Yeah. Um, and then you want scarcity in terms of architectural style, so the type of uh, property as well. So, again, Art Deco, um, single-fronted Victorian cottages, these sorts of things aren't being rebuilt. No. Um, and they've got a timeless style of architecture. Mm. And in, in in one way their supply is reducing and their demand is still increasing. You're always going to get price appreciation. And the last one you want is proven performance. So you want to be able to go back and have a look at what has that property bought, been bought and sold for over the last 30 years and, and impute a, a capital growth rate? And then you can look at either if they're the same or comparable properties in the same street, what are, how have they grown? And it builds a story of what that past growth looks like. And the reason I think that's meaningful, because there's obviously that disclaimer past performance is, is no uh, indication of what future performance is. But I think with property it is more so than the share market because the value drivers are static and factual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're static in terms of, you know, that there's certain hospitals and schools and amenities in, in particular areas and those things can change but rarely do and if they do, they take many decades. Mm-hmm. They're not going to change overnight. Um, and they're, they're, they're factual. You know, it's not my opinion. You know, if I buy CBA because I like the management style yep. and the mm. idea, that's my, that's very subjective. But the land is is north south facing. So you've got two hundred and fifty square meters, and you know there is a school down the road. All these things are a question of fact. And if the growth rate has been strong over the last thirty years, then it's probably because of all those fundamental yeah. factors. All the and the reverse is true yeah, as yeah. well. I think one thing to be mindful of when you're sort of factoring growth over time and looking at an individual property how it's performed. A couple of things. Firstly, has it been renovated? Because that cost of renovation has not been taken out of those yep. figures. So that can inflate, uh, it can actually inflate median growth rates in areas too, like areas yep. that have been gentrified, for instance. Yep. People are buying them unrenovated, renovating them and selling them again. That makes it look like, my God, there's enormous growth in this suburb, but actually you've got to take out an amount of money that might account for how much has been spent renovating them. Um, so it's just something to be mindful of. And the other thing is median prices. I mean, what uses your benchmark? You know, the median 
you know, we've had had many episodes and many interviews with uh, our data scientists and researchers and Kent Larden was a great one. We had a great discussion with Kent. Was that episode six, I think? I have to look it up. Um, you know, around what goes into a median and, and understanding that. But, yeah, the, the picking the appropriate benchmark is very important. So how do you do that? Well, I think there's, um, I think property is part science, part art. So I think you can mm. be over analytical about property and, yep. and by doing so you can end, end up making the wrong decision. So I think it's a nice balance between art and science. But I think the best way to mitigate some of those things, because the other risk too is that the past sale transaction was an arm's length or there was something mm. particular about that sale. And there or the, often is. The agent Human didn't do a very good job yeah. or, you know, so you can't place undue reliance on one particular data point. Mm. But then that's why I say look at, comparable properties in the same area yeah. and is the theme looking to be similar yeah. so yeah. if it's been sold three or four times over the last 30 years you can calculate the growth rate in between those periods and then right. over the whole period yeah. and then you do that for all the other properties in in the area or similar properties in the yeah. area and hopefully the th- there's going to be a couple mm-hmm. of outliers in there but hopefully the theme is strong now if the theme isn't strong you've got to look deeper yeah. it's it's suggesting that something is not right, yeah. and I would only I'd say you'd only buy something if it was all right. If if all the if all the data is compelling and it's a twelve percent growth rate mm. everywhere you look, mm. I mean I don't know what you guys think, but to me Sounds that seems good pretty me. good. Mm. Yeah. I'm going for it. I'm on board, and if the other fundamental, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I really love that line. It's, it's, it's science and art uh, because I was just thinking about a client who's uh, who's a German, and if he listens to <laughs> this, I love him. Uh, <laughs> But he's uh, he's a data scientist, right? He works at a university. He's a professor. Um, he loves his spreadsheets, um, and uh, yeah, and he loves. And when he's comparing property, he's you know, and he's looking to buy. And I'm telling you, she's a buyer's agent. She's not, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, he's done, he's done really well on his first property. He got an amazing that's, apartment. That's probably the worst thing that can happen. Yeah, you that's do right. really well in one. You think you've got False it sorted. Confidence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like, and, and and you know, and hats off to him in terms of how he did it. He, very methodical, was very good on negotiation, very strong and um, got a good property and did all these checks and very methodical mind. Um, but because of that and his position and, you know, it's time to buy an investment property. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, and we've got we got stuck into a spreadsheet wall and uh, whereas, <laughs> you know, he's comparing one oh. property on a rent um, and it's a, kind of a newer townhouse. in. It's in Melbourne actually. It's in uh, North Fitzroy kind of thing uh and yeah it was it was on a busy road and it had good rent because it was renovated because it's a newer townhouse um and i was trying to kind of convince him that that's not really the best option and you maybe should go for more of a you know a nicer frontage maybe you should go into carlton north or brunswick or Northcote or other suburbs um and it wasn't till i got him to go on the ground and to walk the streets and go look at these properties. And so I said, go to Melbourne, go look at them, go to these. And I gave him a whole list of properties and um, he came back and that's when it all sunk in, that it wasn't so much about the spreadsheet. It was about how was it to live in those houses and would owner occupiers and families want to live in these areas? And that's all the art of it all. That's all the emotion side. And, yeah, the and behavioural this, side of it. And the numbers sometimes don't, you know, won't look right. But when you understand, the, you know, the psychology behind the market, then it starts to add up. So I really mm. love that line. 
That's why you should pay for a buyer's agent. Yeah. Because they, 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 they yes. I mean, most buyer's <laughs> agents aren't really that strong. In my experience, and there's a few out there that aren't really that strong. On the science. On the, on the <laughs> science, on the analytical, the mm. numbers side of mm. things. Um, they bring the art aspect. Yes. And it's really that. It's that. That idea that you know some some streets work and some streets don't. Some sides of some streets work and some, and there's no there's no you can look at the data, but there's probably there's no reason logical reason why this other side of the street well, doesn't work. There usually you know? is a logical reason, okay. And I've actually done a lot of analysis on this, and I've actually created in my business a, a capital growth predictive indicator, and we score every property and we score them and rank them and weighted scores on a whole list of criteria, not just just the individual property itself and the location. Yeah. And so it's effectively it's a it's an indicator score for that suburb. So we look at where it is in the suburb and the type of street and blah, 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 but also the type of property, the architectural style, the actual floor plan, the the, the block and, and the regularity or, or not, a whole bunch of factors that go into buyers' willingness to part with lots of money or compete heavily for a property or not compete heavily for a property. Yep. What are the detractors? What are the deal breakers? What are the, the areas in which you can actually fix, you know, things you can do to actually turn it from an underperformer into an overperformer. So, yes, over years, and, and that's that's come about through gut, gut mm. instinct uh, through experience, mm. but also through an anal- analysis, analysis, analysing past properties, as you say, that, you know, looking at those that have actually tracked really well versus those that didn't. What was it about the ones that underperformed versus the ones that overperformed and digging in and really identifying those characteristics? So this is something we've built over many, many years of experience. Mm. It's a very, very useful tool. And I tell you, even when, you know, some of my team, I go, they love this house and the client loves it for argument's sake and we score it and it comes out 64, anything under 75, by the way, we're not to- totally enamoured mm. with, comes out at 64. So our gut feeling might be that, you know, it's not a great performer. This actually puts some framework around that to have a conversation then with the client around once again risk, yep. you know, because, okay, you love it, you're going to live in it, okay, that's a different conversation to you love it and it's an investment. It's a 64. You're not buying it. Mm. Do not buy this property or you're going to live in it. That's okay. Let's talk through these issues, make sure you're fully aware of them and make sure we don't pay too much. Yeah. You know, so they're really important things. What I love about that is, though, is that um, it's not about what you like or what you love or what suits you or what you, you know, because some, you know, if you're a pretty easygoing person, you go, well, it's a few stairs yeah, or it's a bit dark. Yeah, exactly. I don't really care. But, but other buyers are not easy Other going. buyers. <laughs> and what a property's worth is not doesn't matter what you think it's worth or what mm. you like. It's what the market thinks. I've, and- I've got to add into there as well. It is in the context of a particular location, these scores. So, you know, you might score, you know, pro- property might have a kitchen, for instance, that you might score in a certain way for one suburb. In another yeah. suburb, that those finishes are not re- highly regarded or the style of renovation or the architectural style, for instance. So it has to be very... Very much about the market in that location. Very, very important. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. So Stuart, have you got an example of a property dumbo for us? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Um, yes, I do. There's a, a client that um, that he's self-employed, he works ridiculous hours, consultant, works really hard, but doing really well, like he's generating some some good cash flow 
And um, he came to us when he, he probably only came to us when he only had one property. Anyway, he's acquired a, a, a couple of really good quality assets, right? And, he, and anyway, I said, and they're structured right. He's got them in trusts and, you know, he's getting some good advice. We don't do the easy accounting work, but he's obviously getting some, what seems like some good advice on that side. And then he rang us up one day and said, oh, I went to this seminar and I bought two house and land packages. So he's this guy, I thought he's like, really, he gets it, right? He understands the he's on a def, a finite path and he gets where he's going and, and he does that. And anyway, so we jumped on the phone and said to him, okay, so you, did you just sign the contract? So can you get out of it? What are you doing? This thing's just not going to work. You know, all these fundamental reasons, all that sort of stuff. And not just one, but two. Two, yeah, two. And this guy's a smart guy. Like he's not a stupid guy. He's Which a smart. Which just shows the elephant, you know, yeah. that we, we make these decisions with our subconscious. Smart people do dumb things. And I've got no vested interest. In mm. fact, I have a vested interest in buying it because he because we were doing the mortgage broking for yep. him. Oh, there you go. So, so really me talking him out of the purchase is actually me talking myself out of yeah. some more business, right? Yep. And he still proceeded with it. <gasps> yeah. He still proceeded with it. And today, this is probably about five years ago, those properties are worth less than what he paid. Yeah. Yep. And I had a meeting with him uh, in the last year mm. and said, hey, what about those properties? Yeah. <laughs> Trying to get rid of them. And he goes, yeah, I think I've got to sell them. Yeah. So well, how much does that cost him? Because he was on the right path oh. um, of buying some really good quality assets. He could have bought, he, he could have been maybe half a million dollars better off today at least I reckon, given the amount the borrowed and the cash flow he's put in and his capacity and so forth. Well, we're talking five years. Some people have doubled their money in five years. Yes. He could have bought a house, a couple of houses in Melbourne, really good quality houses for five years ago, maybe eight fifty nine hundred, and they'd be worth one three today at least. And he could have bought a couple of them. And the cash flow cost, okay, might have been a little bit more, but it wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah, it wouldn't have been Mm. an issue for him. Um, So what is it about people that don't want to see the wood from the trees that that um, are being want told want to be sold to want to be sold to mm. what are they and maybe it's ego you know maybe you say well, look I made the decision I'm not going to back down and yeah, admit that I made a, a wrong a wrong decision there yeah, but, yeah. yeah. no that's a that's a really good one I mean it, it makes me there's one client at the moment I'm really nervous for um and uh, yeah and I have helped him and you know he's he's he keeps going down the wrong path, right? And I keep dragging him back. And, you know, and then he sent me a message the other night, said, look, I'm thinking about buying this this unit in Canberra. And I've already told him five or six times not to do that because it's not a good idea. Um, and then he'll come back and he, he wants to do it again. And um, he's a he's a smart guy. He's got his, he's running this business. He's turning over millions of dollars. Um, and he wants to solve a short-term problem oh, like no. he's going to Canberra oh. with buying a unit. Oh, um, no, I've got a client at the moment. And... and He's a doctor. He hasn't yet specialised, but he's, he's, he's six, 12 months away from earning some serious dosh and he's going to be, I'm not going to name a suburb, but he's going to be doing a three-month stint in an outer suburb of Sydney and a way outer suburb of Sydney. And he is hell-bent on buying a house out there. Mm. And I'm like, why? And I've gone and done some research for him. And I come back to him and said, "Look, you know, the agents on the ground are saying basically that sixty percent of the buyers have evaporated because they were investors pushing prices up in that area. Mm. What's left are first home buyers are capped at six hundred fifty thousand. There's no growth in that area, mm. um, and you've got a lot of supply, mm. you know. So, and 
you're buying and you, you say you want capital growth. Why do you think you're going to get capital growth out there? And it just keeps coming back to this whole idea of, well, mm. I'm going to be, I'm like, you can rent. You know, put your money elsewhere. He's And then he, he's not from Australia and so he's he's looking at that as being, I can get a four-bedroom, two-bathroom, double garage home with a pool mm. or I can mm. buy for more money mm. a one-bedroom apartment closer into the city, which mm. will go better in value if you buy a good one. It can't get. Away from that whole idea about I can buy a house for less money than I can buy an apartment. And it's like if it's an investment, it doesn't matter what it is. It just matters that it's actually going to grow in value. Yeah, and high IQ doesn't mean that you have high financial literacy. Oh, it's almost Um, worse, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. and I think, um, you know, I do, you know, especially when you were, you know, working in something like a doctor or something, um, your brain has been – you know, finely tuned to the yeah. nth degree and you're so on point sometimes that you, you know, you know your craft so, so well mm. that your brain hasn't got this. Not, and then you start going and you start applying it um, elsewhere. I, I do feel like, you know, it's sometimes a big problem, um, especially, you know, in the, in the medical industry I see yeah. where, um, you know, they haven't taken care of themselves financial future or if they are, they're yeah. more susceptible to making bad decisions. Well, so, because they are revered too, and I guess if somebody's going to become a surgeon, they are revered and there's mm. a certain mindset and a type of person that that's, can succeed there. They, somebody's life is in their hands, so they have to have an enormous amount of self-confidence, mm. you know, and unfortunately that can be misplaced when it comes to areas outside their expertise. But, um, you yeah. know, the, I've been doing this for 16 years and I, I, I think the answer lies in um, in free advice. You know, yeah. the, the, the times when I've told clients just don't do it, um, and they've done it, well, I won't work with that client because what's the point of yeah. paying, for, paying me for mm. advice if you're not going to follow it? You can do it for free by yourself. Yeah. Um, but the times what I've told in that particular story, I've said don't, don't mm. buy it, don't buy it. That's been free advice, right? Yeah. I haven't yeah. charged for it. Maybe you should have. You said, look, come in, I'm going to charge you That's two the hours of my thing. time and I'm going to give you some advice. In fact, the higher <laughs> fee I would have charged, yeah. I reckon the greater probability they'd follow the advice. Interesting, isn't so it? So if I had to charge him three grand to tell him what I already know, I wouldn't do it. But if I mm. uh, charge him three grand, I, I reckon there's, my gut feeling would be there was a would have been a stronger probability wow. they would have followed the advice yeah. We've got a and would have saved him. coming in oh, to yeah. do an interview. Oh, well, I really want to do an episode on wishful thinking. And so, yeah. you know, I reckon let's let's find out more about this. Yeah. I agree, mm. though, and I think that's a that's really powerful for your clients, right, and that's why they work with you is not because you're going to tell them what they want to hear. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and that's what you – that's what they – and the validators. Um, validators don't really and I, we don't really get along very well sometimes with clients because <laughs> – um, you know, I'm, I just want to help them, right? And, and if they want me to validate something they're doing, it's much easier for me to say, yes, that's a good yeah, idea. Yeah, sure, and I'll take your money to help you. Yeah, et cetera. But, I, but can't. Um, I can't. I, <laughs> I have to say something and it, it has to. And if, if that means losing them as a client or it means that they're not going to work together, I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I'll, and, uh, you know, and I think that's that's the benefit of that is that when clients do understand, that does take them some time. Mm. And, um, yeah. you know, you've it, got a client at the moment who's gone full circle. Um, you know, uh, contacts me via LinkedIn, had a good chat. Unfortunately, he'd already um, a property spruker out there that um, got you know, hold of him. <laughs> had had already spoke to before. And um, one of the tactics that you know spruikers use is just getting a little bit of skin in the game. Mm. And it's usually a fee of five hundred dollars mm. or a thousand dollars. So um, they know the art of charging. Mm. Yeah, and then they. Oh my They're god! Using it for yeah. evil, not good. Yes. And so he'd already he'd already committed a thousand dollars to mm. this spruker, and so he'd already made that commitment. So he has to to pull out of this. He could, 
but he would have to potentially lose the thousand dollars and cost and face, you know, a bit of ego and things. Yeah, to, consistency to, bias. There's all those those behavioural biases yeah. tapped in there. So but, if but he's what, come around, has he? Well, what worked is we I contacted him up a few days after and said, look, you know, how'd you find the chat? You know, I'm, I'm not very zero pushy at all. I just mm. say, hey, how'd you find it? Was, you, was it good? Was it valuable? He wrote back and said, look, mate, really appreciate it, but we, we don't align. Uh, and then just last week he got back in touch with me. You know, I'm still a bit lost, mate, need some help. I said, yeah, no worries, let's have a call. And what was really interesting, though, is he didn't go ahead. And so what I – Oh, thank so goodness. So mm. he, he got to the point and he pulled out and he realised it didn't all make sense. Yeah. And he hasn't done anything for a year, but, you know, he came back. And so mm. that's what I think what happens, right? Mm. Like the clients will, you know, they'll remember that conversation and years down the line it will sink in and, you know, hopefully – We hope yeah. before they've done any damage. Mm. Yeah. Stuart, it's been fantastic meeting you. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I'm sure there's lots and lots of gold there for our um, for our listeners. Now, how can people get in touch with you? How can they get hold of your book? I should say books. Yeah, You've got books. a few books, yep. Uh, so Investopoly, you can just Google it and there's a website, investopoly.com.au, and you can certainly follow the links there. And I'll add a, a code if you like. Um, oh, maybe lovely. the code elephant and it can give them a 30% discount. We'll pop the link to, in the show notes, yeah. listeners. <laughs> can, I, can I get a refund on my yeah. book? And get 30%. <laughs> no <back>. refunds. Ooh, <laughs> I'm getting a discount on mine. <laughs> Will these be signed copies? Uh, oh, it, it, it allows you to sort of tick it if you want it signed. So oh, yeah. um, okay. um, oh, I'll get yeah. one of my kids to sign it for you. <laughs> yeah, and if any, any people, the listeners are in Melbourne and they're looking for someone to help them with finances and, and things like that, you know, personally, I would, you know, I'd trusted yourself you know there's not many in the country i would really probably confidently say go speak to uh and that's because you know i've seen your track record i've seen what you do i've read enough of your content to to go right mm. you know you're, you're staying true to what you've always said uh and a lot of you know advisors don't they're one minute they're advising on something and they're coming up with some new strategy oh, the next yeah. day you've got to stay consistent and so you know you've got that track record so yeah, appreciate that thank no you Chris. Yeah, and one thing I've noticed from reading your your material as well is that um, it's not often that you see somebody who doesn't come from a property background getting it the way you get it, you know, and there was one you wrote about sort of, you know, is regional better than mm. um, major capital city and apartments versus houses and and the, the, the sort of case study approach, I guess, that you took to that and, and looking at the various angles and looking at that I thought was really good. That's exactly the sort of thing, conversation we have with our clients and I was like, ooh, ooh, ooh a bit excited. Yeah. I feel good because I don't have all the same qualifications on the financial yeah. side that you do. So I feel good on my side of things. Like, yeah, I've got that side of things right. And, and yeah. certainly the behavioural side of things as we've talked about, how buyers behave and what drives the market are is human beings. So mm. there's numbers involved but it's mm. human beings that drive it and I thought that you really had mm. a good understanding of that. Mm. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Stuart. Excellent. Thanks, Cheers. guys. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is... Well, let's talk about how you determine an underperforming asset when it comes to property, something that Stuart did talk about and, and certainly we covered off uh, quite a good, robust conversation around what makes investment-grade property. But if you're already holding property and you're wondering, oh, God, does the property I own, is it a, a good performer or a bad performer? Here's some fundamentals. Now, firstly, have you bought an investment-grade property or investment stock? Okay, now we can pretty much 100% guarantee that if you bought investment stock, it's probably going to be an underperformer. And what we mean by investment stock is the type of property that has been developed or built or marketed specifically to investors. So I'll give you some examples. Student accommodation, 
service departments. Those sorts of houses that are built for co-sharing, so they've got, you know, a couple of kitchens, a couple of bathrooms and and lots of bedrooms, but it's not really a a family home. Those sorts of properties have been built, developed and marketed with the investor in mind. And the thing is that for an investment to really perform well, it needs to have a wide appeal, okay? And the wide appeal means a lot of owner-occupiers need to want it. And so the fundamental that I look for when we're buying property for any of our clients or even for ourselves is that we want to make sure that whatever property we buy ultimately would be very, very appealing to an owner-occupier down the track. Owner-occupiers are the foundation that underpin any good location and they're also the type of buyer that's more likely to be emotional about a property and pay more than investors. So if you've only got investors interested in property, they're going to use the numbers to make their decisions rightly or wrongly, whereas owner-occupiers will look at numbers but they'll also look at what that property means to them and status and their lifestyle and there's a whole bunch of other criteria that they use to get emotional about a property and push your prices up. So that's fundamentally some of the things that we look for when we're looking at whether a property is likely to be an overperformer or an underperformer. Please join us for our next episode when we are interviewing a demographer. Now, what is a demographer? It's somebody that actually studies the behaviour of human beings. So what we're talking about is the behaviour of Australians, and that's existing and born and bred Australians and migrants, and how that's going to change the way that we live in property, the demand for property, the types of property that we live in, and the ways that our cities are formulated. Very, very interesting slightly futurist episode so tune in for that one don't forget we're on all the social channels we're on facebook we're on linkedin we're on twitter or you can connect with us on the elephant in the the links are all there for you please connect and send us a message we'd love to hear from you the elephant in the room property podcast is recorded at the sydney sound brewery until next week don't be a dumbo Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.